The reading is is Amos chapter 3. That's on page 917 in the Blue Bibles. Amos chapter 3. Hear this word, the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your sins. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Does a lion roar in the thicket when he has no prey? Does he growl in his den when he has caught nothing? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground where no snare has been set? Does a trap spring up from the earth where there is nothing to catch? When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who hoard plunder and loot in their, fo- in their fortresses. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun the land. He will pull down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd saves from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites be saved. Those who sit in Samaria on the edge of their beds and in Damascus on their couches. Hear this and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we remain standing, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray as we come to look into this passage of Amos that you would speak to us this morning. Give us understanding to hear what you're saying and to see what you're saying. And help us, Lord, to see how it speaks to us as your people. Father, we pray your spirit would move amongst us and enlighten us this morning and speak into our hearts. Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you can't have a sermon on Amos, can you, these days, without a sound effect. 
And as we walked out of church last Sunday morning, Rachel said to me, well, if there's one thing about next week, you need to find a sound effect. I don't know what the sound of the air raid siren conjures up for you. It's worth just taking a few moments just to reflect on what your reaction is or was to that. There's very few of us, if any here, or or watching online, I guess, who've heard air raid sirens go for real. My parents, who both grew up in Birmingham, would talk about the air raid siren sounding and leaving the house, going into the air raid shelter and staying there for hours until the all-clear sound was heard. Rose's mother described how the air raid siren was the signal for her to go and sit and do her homework underneath the kitchen table. That was fine until November 1940, when a German bomber on its way back to Germany decided to leave what was left of its payload on the rural village of Kirby Muxlow in Leicestershire, and the house fell down around them underneath the table. They were fine, they were uninjured. Why weren't they in the air raid shelter? Well, it was too inconvenient. It was next to the school for the whole village. It was made of concrete, and there was often water in the bottom. So no one bothered to go until November 1940. Then they tended to go fairly regularly after that. Two weeks ago, James introduced us to Amos. It's about 700 years before Jesus was alive, and it was a time of prosperity. The people were relatively well off, and it was a time of security for the nation. Amos was that shepherd from Tekoa, Tekoa, who also had interest in the wine business, and he was a prophet who brought the word of the Lord to the kingdom of Israel. James reminded us that the roar of the lion was the sound of danger, the sound of warning. If you were here last week, you remember the sound effect was the arrow hitting the target. As in his first set of oracles, Amos talked about the seven nations around Israel and what was wrong there before in his eighth oracle, zoning in on Israel itself. And so we've now reached the end of that introduction and we're getting into Amos proper when he settles down into this prophecy about against the kingdom of Israel. And this morning we've got two challenges that we need to face up to. The first one is to get our heads round and to understand what Amos is actually saying. And secondly, to see what it has to say to us today in the life in which we live. If you've got your Bible or there's a Bible handy or you've got it on your phone, please open it to Amos chapter 3. I think it's around page 918, something like that in the Blue Bibles. And the passage we're going to look at in three sections. And we're going to start with the first two verses, where Amos makes clear to his hearers hearers, that privilege 
is not going to help them. We don't know what the reaction was of the people of Israel to that initial set of oracles that Amos issued in chapters 1 and 2. I guess when they heard about the other nations around them being criticised, when they heard about judgment being coming upon them, there was a sense of they deserved it, or a bit of relief. A bit like when we listen to the weather forecast, so you know it's going to rain in the southeast and the southwest and the northeast. And then you get to the northwest and it says it's going to rain and there's howling gales as well. You don't feel quite so good, do you? I guess there was a bit of that reaction about, well, it's everyone else, so they deserve it. That's good for them to get it. When it comes to Israel, I guess there's a bit of a different reaction. And you can imagine them saying, well, we're not happy about this. Because we're special. We're God's special people. We're the people that he's called. We're the people that he brought up out of Egypt, that he rescued and brought us to this land. And that's where Amos starts. And if you look at verse 2, Amos says, The words of the Lord, you only have I chosen from all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. See, Amos tackles the Israelite thinking head on. As you read through this book of Amos, you see that the people thought that they were privileged. They were special. And that would exempt them from God's punishment or any evil or disaster overtaking them. If you look in chapter 9 and verse 10, they felt that evil and disaster could never actually happen to them. If you look at the beginning of chapter 6, you see they were complacent. They felt at ease and confident because of who they were. And in verse 14 of chapter 5, they felt that the Lord was truly with them. And taken with the economic prosperity they were enjoying and the military security, they thought that, you know, the day of the Lord is coming, but when it comes, it's going to be great for us. It's going to be light and salvation. It's going to be victorious because God is unconditionally on our side. We are his special people. And Amos stops them right there. He says, yes, you are. But because of that, you're going to be punished for your sins. Amos' words are stunning, aren't they, in their directness with which he confronts his hearers. Because of that special relationship, more was expected. See, if you have a special relationship with someone, it's natural that you expect more of them. You don't expect a great deal of your enemies. You don't expect a great deal of those people you don't get on with. But people with whom you've got a special relationship, be it members of your family, people you know well, people you feel some commitment to both ways, you expect more. And more was expected of Israel. And Amos says, yes, you are special, 
But because of that, more is expected. And you haven't lived up to that. Privilege of being God's special people is not going to help, is what he wants to start with. It then goes on in verses 3 to 8 through a series of rhetorical questions. Now, I don't know if you have rhetorical questions in Cantonese. I don't know if it's just a, an English idiom or a way of speaking, but it means a question that you ask when you're doing a talk or something like this that you don't expect anyone to answer. When I was head at Weaver, I used to do school assemblies, and I always used to find in year seven, the first year that came in, you know, that I'd be standing there in full flow, a bit like this, and I'd ask a rhetorical question. And two or three hands would go up. People thought they knew the answer. Well, they did know the answer, but it was a rhetorical question. I had to explain to them that that was a rhetorical question. They didn't need to answer it. And Amos begins this second section with a number of rhetorical questions. And we find them beginning in verse 3. And the first five all begin with this word does or, or do in the singular, but that, that same word. You can see it if you look down the passage, those first five questions. And it begins, do two people walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Now, you can get into the Hebrew of this, and we could spend hours on it, and I'm not going to. But it, it, it's, whether they, it's whether it's a sense of appointment, or whether they bumped into each other. And people disagree about that. But you, you know that thing, you, you, you can be on the same walk as someone, can't you? But you, you, know, you can be three miles behind, or you can be half an hour behind. But can two people walk together unless they've actually met. Well, of course they can't. When I was at Weaver, we used to do Duke of Edinburgh expeditions, or I didn't do the expedition, I just had to go and supervise. And uh, there'd be about 100 children going out in groups of about four or five. And, um, you know, it was all on the same day, and there was really only two routes, one going clockwise and the one going anti-clockwise, so you had to set them off with a really a 20-minute gap in between. Um, but, of course, you can imagine what happened. By the time you got to lunchtime, instead of being you know, like ten groups, they were down to about three. <laughs> and, of course, what happened then was, you know, they, there was one person who thought they knew how to read a map, so they all followed that person, and they all got lost together. <laughs> and so when you're on, you know, checking them off, you have to try and split these groups up. But can two people walk together unless they've met? No. It's absolutely obvious. Does a lion roar in the thicket if it hasn't got its prey? Well, no. So what's the prey going to do? Get away as fast as possible if it knows the lion's there. Does it growl in its den if it's caught nothing? No. Amos would know that as a shepherd. He knew that the lion wouldn't be growling in its den if it didn't have anything to eat. Does a bird swoop down? Here the Hebrew gets interesting again. It says in most of you, most of the Bibles that you've got in front of you, I guess it talks about a snare. Probably a better description. Does a bird swoop down to a trap unless there's no bait? Well, of course it doesn't. I have to say, I, I, I didn't know 
how many, how many different kinds of birds we had in the garden. Till I used my late mother-in-law's bird feeders, her who was under the kitchen table in the bomb, used her bird feeders, and you see them come in, I won't say they're droves, but loads of them. A bird doesn't swoop down to a trap unless there's bait for it. Does a trap spring from the ground if it's not caught in it, if nothing's triggered that plate to go off? No, it doesn't. And the answer to all those five questions is no, of course not. It's obvious. They're all drawn from a rural way of life. But in verse 6, things change. And the direction changes. So we shift focus from a rural way of life to the city, to the urban way of life. And to heighten that impact, whereas all these questions are about a cause and an effect, so does the bird swoop down unless there's a bait? Bird swooping down is the effect. The bait is the reason. Does the lion growl the effect unless it's caught something, the reason, it actually reverses that. And so in verse 6, to make the impact and to change it, to make it clear where we're getting to some sort of climax, Amos shifts from the countryside to the city and he changes the order. Can the trumpet sound in the city and the people not be fearful. Well, it wasn't a trumpet. It was a ram's horn. And it was a ram's horn to sound warning. Can the air raid sirens sound and you not be anxious? Can you not be worried? Can you not be afraid in that situation? The answer is no. Unless you're daft enough to think that the kitchen table is going to be security, you're going to find the air raid shelter and go there. He goes on with a seventh question. And we find this in the second half of verse 6. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? And you see what's happened? We've gone through all those very obvious questions of answers of cause and effect. It's got a bit more serious with the air raid siren. And now there's a bit of a crunch. Can disaster strike a city unless the Lord has caused it. And they've been like suckered in, haven't they? To say, well, it's obvious. The answer's no. They've been drawn along by Amos's argument. But it's a bit like chapters 1 and 2. We've got seven questions so far. You think you've reached the crunch. And actually the killer blow is in the eighth question. Because if you skip to verse 8, 
you find there's another question. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, who cannot prophesy? And that's the killer blow. Just as they thought the seventh one about the destruction of the city being caused by the Lord as the pinnacle, Amos, like he attacked Israel in chapter 2, now turns up the heat here and says, can, the Lord has spoken, can a prophet do anything else except prophesy? You see, they probably said, Amos, you're just a shepherd. What do you know? But his led his hearers through these common sense questions to get across his basic message. His basic message that Yahweh will bring destruction, God will bring destruction on these people. And me, this little shepherd, has no option but to announce it, to declare it. I'm compelled to speak out. I'm not just making this up. It's not just a whim I thought about while looking after the sheep. It's something that's come naturally. And I'm compelled to speak about it. So as we look at the rest of this chapter, it becomes the condemnation of Israel. And... um, It begins with condemnation of Samaria, the the capital city of the kingdom of Israel, the the big city, the centre, and then goes on to Israel more widely. So if we look in verse 9, he says, Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and the fortresses of Egypt, come and bring yourselves up over the mountains around Samaria. Now, why did he choose witnesses from Ashdod and Egypt? Well, goodness knows. But undoubtedly, the Israel people would have seen themselves as superior to both those nations, more special, more prosperous, more secure. And so it's humiliating to have them set up as witnesses to see what's going on. And Amos says, Come, stand on the hills, on the mountains around Samaria, and see what's going on in the city. You see, when you approach a city, what do you see in those days? You saw high walls. You saw a few towers. It looked impressive. It was designed to look impressive, so you didn't feel like attacking it. But Amos says, come and stand on the mountains and look over the walls and see inside. And he said, you'll see things as they really are. And he picks out four things in verses 9 and 10 that is the reality of Samaria. He says, firstly, there's great unrest within her. There's a great tumult. The people were restless. There was fear. There was confusion. Because of the outrages of what was going on in the city, The people felt the injustice and they were restless and they were unsettled. He goes on to say, you'll see the oppression of people. The wealthy, see, society wasn't unified. It was divided into those who were wealthy 
and those who were exploited so the wealthy could become more rich. And so people were oppressed. He goes on in verse 10. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. The things that you'd normally think of as being the right things to do, they don't know how to do them. The word right really means straight. You know, they don't know the straight things to do. And instead, they're hoarding up what they've plundered and looted in their fortresses. With that emphasis on material wealth and how it's got. You see, their sins weren't breaking the covenant law. They weren't specifically not living up to the Ten Commandments, although you could perhaps argue that some of the Ten Commandments weren't fulfilled in what they did. But their sins were in the very fabric of their society. How it made its wealth. How it was prosperous. And what it did with that prosperity. That was where its sins lay. And because of this, Amos describes in pretty graphic terms what will happen. And so we find in verse 11 that an enemy will overrun your land. Strongholds will be pulled down and plunder your fortresses. Their strongholds will be destroyed. Their military strength will go. Their wealth would be stolen from them and the land was overrun. It continues in verse 13 and 14. On that day I'll punish yourself. I'll I'll destroy the altars of Bethel. Those very religious places that are precious to you, that you think are so special, will be destroyed. The altars will be crushed down. The horns of the altar will be cut off. It's not just a sense of destroy, it's a sense of sacrilege as well. We'll tear down the winter houses. The houses are going to be destroyed. Not just their, their summer houses, their second homes. Their first homes as well. Not just the shanty towns or the, the council estates are going to be destroyed, but the luxury mansions designed by architects inlaid with ivory, all going to be destroyed. Amos says this is the destruction that is coming on Israel because of the sins that you can see when you look over the walls and see what's really going on in the city. And in the middle you've got this lovely little passage that Amos has undoubtedly drawn straight from his personal experience in verse 12. You see, if if you were a shepherd, you'd have a load of sheep to look after. And one of your jobs was to make sure that the wolves or the lions didn't get them. But occasionally, despite your best efforts, that would happen. So how did you prove that it's not that you've just pinched one of the sheep, or two of the sheep, or three of the sheep, but it's a lion that's got them? Well, you can go to Exodus 22 and you see what you need to, but you have to extract a bit of the body to take back proof that they've been captured by the lion. And Amos is saying in verse 12, what's going to be left of this great nation of Israel? How are you going to prove, how are people going to know that a great nation ever lived there, or ever was there? 
the only things that would be left would be two bits of a bed or a bit of a bed and a bit of a couch I don't know what's precious or most precious or most valuable in your homes I guess it's not your bed and I guess it's not your settee but Amos is saying all that's going to be left of Samaria is a bit of bed and a bit of settee. You know, when archaeologists dig up something and they say we've got an important civilization here or a kingdom that's wealthy and mighty, what do they find? Jewels, weapons, adornments. They don't find bits of bed. And Amos is saying, just as the proof that a sheep existed is the bit you take back, so the only proof that a great nation existed will be a couple of bits of bed. It's damning. To Amos' hearers, they thought this was impossible. They were special. They were God's people. But Amos is saying destruction is coming. Because God is acting against you because of the culture of the life that you live. And I've got no option but to speak out. So that was 700 years before Jesus was alive. So nearly 3,000 years later, what does this have to say to us? Well, I think there's perhaps some questions that we need to ask ourselves if we're honest this morning. The first one is this. Is our society very different today to how Amos has described it in Samaria? The people were unsettled because they felt the injustice Sometimes feels a bit like that, doesn't it, when you turn on the news in the morning. The people were oppressed because people wanted to make greater profits by exploiting them. And when we hear stories of people trafficking and immigration, people being brought in to work in slavery conditions, is that very different to exploiting people? They don't know how to do what's right, what's straight. I have to say to you, you know, the debate on the place of honesty in public life has been prevalent over this last year in a way that I've never seen it before, that that's been questioned. Is getting the job more done? Getting the job done and the expediency more important than how it's done and doing it in the right way. And they hoard, plunder and loot. Too focused on material wealth. And if it involves sharp financial deals or elaborate tax avoidance, does that really matter? It's what we've got that counts. Now, we might say, well, yes, that's right, but that's not, that's not us. We don't do those things. But how much do we speak out against them? How much do we cry out against them? Or do we just silently acquiesce? 
be glad that things are cheaper because they're made with cheap labour? Are we just pleased that we've got better services or cheaper services because people are paid less than they need to be? Our response needs to be to speak out against it, to challenge it, to repent on behalf of the people amongst who will. If you remember Isaiah when he saw the Lord in the temple, fell on his knees and said, Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in a land of people of unclean lips. Isaiah's repentance wasn't just for himself, it was for the people in whom he lived. And is that an attitude that we need to take on ourselves as we repent and intercede and cry out for our nation and the culture in which we live today? Is it very different? Do we take an outside or an inside view of ourselves? Inevitably, we all want to put on our best appearance at times. We want to show people our best side. But do we fool ourselves in the process as well? You say the Israel, people of Israel were there, look at our fine city. See our prosperity. See our security. And Amos says, look over the walls and see what it's really like inside. What view do you have of yourself are you looking at what you're like on the inside and being honest about that or are you just looking at the outside view in Matthew 15 Jesus gets into a discussion with the Pharisees because they criticise his disciples for not ceremoniously washing before they eat food and Jesus challenges them and he disagrees with them and he says, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body. But the thing things that comes out of a person's mouth come from the heart. And these defile them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. That's the inside view. And there's a need for us to come and as individuals repent and to seek that transformation of God's Holy Spirit to make us like Jesus, to sanctify us, to change us. So we sang in that song, Bend us, O Lord, where we are hard and cold. Come with your refiner's fire and change us. Are we look at the inside or are we fooled by the outside? And finally, let me ask you, what privileges do you tend to rely on? Or are you tempted to rely on? You see, the people of Israel felt they were too special to be punished by God. Their special history, their special relationship would mean they got special blessing. What do we think is special about us? Our skills, our gifts, our abilities, the good things we do, our wealth, our spiritual status, our holding on to the Bible. What is it? See, the danger with privilege is it brings pride. 
And Isaiah chapter 6, 66 says, These are the ones I look on with favour, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. They don't see privilege. They see themselves as they are and come with humility. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words of Amos, and we pray that you'd help us to look honestly at ourselves, to take that view of what we're like on the inside, and to seek your forgiveness, seek your transformation, to seek your renewal. Father, we pray that you'd take away any sense of privilege that we have, and make us solely dependent on you. But Lord, this morning as we look around and we think of the world in which we live, Father, we pray for the people of which we part. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness and we seek your blessing. Amen.